Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, Annie Highwater, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, Coming Up for Air. Hi, everyone. Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air. And I am here with my co-host, Kayla Solomon. Hi, Laurie. And today we have a special guest, Carl Eric Fisher. Carl attended medical school at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, where he was the Doris Duke Foundation Clinical Research Fellow. He completed his psychiatric residency at Columbia University Medical Center and specialty fellowship training in forensic psychiatry at the Joint Program of Columbia and Cornell Universities. He is board certified in the subspecialty of addiction medicine and is now on faculty at Columbia, where he teaches psychiatric fellows, medical students, law students, and bioethics graduate students on topics related to psychiatry, ethics, and neuroscience. He's deeply interested in the clinical applications of meditation and mindfulness, especially techniques arising from the Buddhist and yogic traditions. His studies on these topics began nearly two decades ago, when he spent a year in Seoul, South Korea, studying Zen meditation and neuroscience. He later completed yoga teacher training with, and I'm going to need help pronouncing this as well, Mati Israti, and is a past attendee of the Mind and Life Institute's Summer Research Institute. Wow, that was a, that was a mouthful and uh, some pretty amazing credentials there. So how are you, Carl? I'm good. Yeah, it's nice to be here with you. So, Carl, here's the interesting thing. I, we, when we hear your background and experience and what you're doing, there's a lot. There's a lot that you do. There's a lot that you come to us with. And our target audience are people who are dealing with their loved ones and addiction and the unbelievable stress that goes along with that, because clearly it's life and death on a regular basis or the feeling that it's life and death on a regular basis. And so although we have that 10,000 questions that we have to ask, we would like to ask you, we're going to, I'm going to start with one question, which is if you could just talk about the stress aspect of this physiological and biological aspects of stress, the impact that it has on people, not only on their bodies, but on their reactions. And then if there's any tools that you could give people to deal with stress, that would be really helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll start off kind of briefly and then we can maybe let the conversation evolve because uh, you might have follow-up questions about specific techniques. And I'm curious to hear how it plays out in your, your practice and your work too. Yeah. The stress is really important to me. It's close to my heart. Both of my parents were alcoholics growing up. That's a big part of why I got into addiction medicine. And so I, I can, I'm familiar with that from the child side. And uh, that, that was a big part of my motivation to go into psychiatry. Of course, since then, I've seen, you know, dozens of parents struggling with that sort of like chronic worry and stress. And I think it's crucial. It's crucial for the parent. And it's also kind of like putting on the oxygen mask 
for the child or for the the loved one. So let me just dive into a, a brief discussion of how I think of stress, because I think it's useful. I'm not always a big fan of like the conceptual neuroscience based explanations. I think sometimes they get a little too like nerdy and misleading. Um, but this is one of those cases where really understanding the biology, I think it's helpful. I think it helps to like clarify what's going on and helps people to step back and take a time out and look at what's happening as it's coming up. And the upshot is there are different kinds of stress. We lump them together, but there's, there's a more physiological kind of stress that arises when you say run, run a marathon or do something else that's immediately physically demanding. But then there's also this more psychological kind of stress, which activates totally different brain areas. It activates totally different bodily systems. And the important part about that is it's more apt. It's more prone to just keep on running in the background in a chronic way. And our bodies aren't built for that, really. It's not really useful. You could look at it as a part of our body that's trying to help us. And it's activating systems that were developed over time to try to help us when we were in danger. But when it's active in that sort of ongoing psychological chronic way, it's not. And um, I think that can be helpful to give people a sort of permission to back up because sometimes that stress feels like it's protecting us. It feels like if I, if I turn down the volume, I might lose my edge or I might stop paying attention or I might numb out. It can be, I guess, just kind of um, insidious right? tricky. I can really relate to what you're saying because I know that going through what I went through with my son, I had this feeling that if I let that stress level down in my mind, I might miss something. I might not be able to intervene. I had to be, I, I called it, I had to be on top of my game all of the time. So I had to allow the stress to kind of take over and stay there and not leave, if that makes sense. Because if I did, then I would be letting my my spidey senses down and I wouldn't be prepared for what was coming. Yeah, exactly that. And I mean, I've I've experienced that myself and I've seen other people experience that over and over again. And, you know, it's natural to be tricked into that feeling. It's almost kind of intoxicating in itself to be on that high of the constant vigilance. The tricky thing about it is it doesn't actually work. I mean, the, the physiological response of the stress response in this way is that cortisol is released by the brain to activate the adrenal glands and make you ready for action. But that means make you ready for action in the immediate sense, like run away from a predator. And right. it does a lot of things that are not helpful, like actually shut down your immune system or shut down your digestive system. And these things are, are useful to do. It's not like your, your body is letting you down. It's just that it's, it's the wrong tool for the job. And those stress responses are supposed to vary throughout the day. It's not supposed to be constant all the time. Those, those hormones like cortisol are supposed to be in a rhythm. Uh, and when they flatten out, that leads to burnout. And that leads to uh, certainly like mental problems, like burnout and depression and demoralization, but also physical problems. Like weight gain. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like a decreased impulse control or going to other like sort of self-soothing things. And the point of it is like, we need more of that kind of flexibility, I think, this sort of more relaxed flexibility to act at our best. This is where the oxygen mask thing comes on, is um, being in a state of constant constant stress is not actually helpful. It leads to rigidity and it leads to uh, just not feeling well. 
And how could you possibly help someone from that position? How could you have the cognitive flexibility to respond appropriately or to like meet the moment in the moment as it's coming up? And this is all the, you know, it's not to say there's a good way or a bad way because I would hate to like put another layer of shame on top of it. Like, oh, you should reduce your stress and therefore you better get on it. It's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to find little breaks or ways of, of reducing stress, but that's one of my focuses too. But I think what Lori is saying is a really important point, which is that the people that were, that are listening to this are very focused on caring and saving their loved ones. And what we talk about all the time is at what cost and how effective are they being at this high level of stress. And what you're saying is that, that actually reducing the stress allows you to be more effective. And I feel like if we could be really clear about that frame, it makes a really big difference. So that if you work on your stress, you actually still do get to respond, but you respond, as you said, with more flexibility and actually with more awareness of the choices that you're making. Yeah, 100%. I totally agree. I think it's a really nice way of putting it. And just saying what you just said can be a really nice way of granting oneself permission. I think people sometimes have to practice telling themselves, like, I am doing this, I'm taking a step back, or I'm taking a rest, or I'm doing some self-care so that I can have the energy, so that I can have the flexibility or the insight to respond when it's actually effective. It's not, it's not like taking a break. It's not not caring for the other. It's all, it's all together. It's being more effective. Yeah. Right. How do you get to this point? How do you get there? Yeah, I, I could talk about different techniques that I think are useful. And I also think that like the, I don't know, Instagram influencer dream of like floating in an infinity pool and being <laughs> stressless is also like misguided because a lot of people have stress. You know, it's a stressful time. There's a lot that's uncertain about, uh, you know, COVID and everything. So it's, you know, people are stressed where that affects a lot of people's work. Uh, the the whole work situation is a whole mess. So like, it's a stressful time. So the point is not to abolish stress or see stress as the enemy. I think the first step is, as I'm sure you talk about in your work, and I think is like a central tenant of craft and other related work is to uh, sort of like welcome in and make friends with the feeling in a sort of mindfulness approach and, and say like, I can recognize this is here and not let it own me necessarily. I can coexist with it. But that being said, yeah, I think that it's good to also think of uh, working on stress as something that's worth doing. Like it's worth giving myself a couple minutes here and there to insert a little intervention uh, to try to bring my stress levels down. So I just had this thought yesterday, so I have to share this. I was working with somebody and we realized that terminology matters. And, and in this case, I would say if you use the word, if you use the terminology, I have stress versus I am stressed it makes a huge difference because oh, yeah. one of them is identity and the other one is something that you're working with or that you have as an aspect of your life as opposed to identifying as that. I totally agree. There's, there's a great exercise from ACT therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is very interested in these types of little linguistic tricks. You take a feeling like that, like I am stressed, and then take it one step back and say, I'm noticing that I feel stressed. And then you do it again. And then you say, uh, I'm noticing that I'm having the thought that I am stressed. And that, that gives you 
a sort of two-step ability Thanks. to observe it as a phenomenon rather yeah. than something that just owns you or the sum total of your experience. That's interesting. And I have all these thoughts going on inside of my head because it took me a long time to get to being able to stop in the moment of a crisis. And also, interestingly enough, it isn't a moment that I just stopped. I had to talk myself down, right? Before, okay, now I'm going to notice my thoughts and my feelings. So it it wasn't like this hard stop. Does that make sense? Like when we talk about, cause we do, I, I run, um, my rest groups, I have these groups and, and it's based in craft and what we do with the allies and recovery website. And in module seven, we talk about this type of thing where um, you're going to let your thoughts kind of take you over and your feelings take you over and not fight them. But I think that it can be misconstrued as being this moment in time where you just stop Right. You just start like what you you said before. It's like taking a break, but it's taking a break from the situation to do some self-care and to logically think through the problem. So any techniques to kind of move yourself in those moments of crisis when your mind is just going absolutely nuts, uh, which you you've already described one, because I like that idea of talking yourself down. That mm-hmm. And that's basically what you described, right? Like finding a way to kind of, I don't know, break the, break the little chain that you've got attached to that situation. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's a, it's a kind of self-talk because some of the people use the word self-talk to mean I should be able to talk myself out of a bad feeling, which I don't think is always productive. Instead, it's a, a kind of reset of a self-talk that lets you, one of the jargon words that I think is nice is defuse from the thought. So we're not totally fused with the, with the negative feeling. It might be there. We might be allowing it to coexist and to work with it, but it's not us. So one word for that in general is labeling practice or noticing practice. And that's a mindfulness exercise, but it's one you can just do right off the cuff. So one of those ways is that little phrase, I'm noticing that I'm having the thought that, 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 that. It could also be If it's a persistent thought, if it's uh, something that keeps on coming up over and over again, sometimes people even personify it. Like you could say, some people say, oh, there's Mr. Mind again, or there's Mrs. Mind again, or, oh, there's, there's the worrier. And that's not to be dismissive. It's just to recognize that there's a part of my mind that's overactive. It's kind of like what we were talking about with the stress system before. There's a part of me that's trying to help me, but it's not super helpful right now. So I'm going to recognize it as a thing that's happening and allow it to come and allow it to go. Like you can be along on the ride, but you can't drive right now. I like that. You can be along on the ride, but you can't drive right now. (laughs) So, so what other, what other orientation do you have towards stress and ways of helping people manage the stress? Yeah, that's, so we've been talking about the sort of mental side and sometimes it's not enough. And I think a physical reset is really good too. So I work a lot with meditation and mindfulness And the thing to say about that is sometimes people have the thought like, oh, I I have to sit for 20 minutes a day or I have to go download the new meditation app. And that's not always the best entry point. There are a lot of other informal ways of injecting a little physical practice into the day. 
One of the easiest that I like the most is walking. There's a little less of this nowadays because people don't have commutes, but to be really intentional about one part of your day, even if you're not out and about that much, you can choose something like walking out to refill the bird feeder or when I walk out to take out the trash, but just choose a part, a part of the day that's pretty regular, ideally daily, and make that into a meditation to totally set down everything, no music, no nothing, no phone call. And to make it a meditation practice in that you're paying attention to every footfall, the feeling of the foot on the ground, the feeling of your body in space. And that can be a very powerful meditation practice. It can also be a sort of cue to remember to do that. If you get a taste of that feeling soothing, if it brings you back into the present, then it's a nice way of uh, reminding yourself, here's the thing I can do. You know, if I start to feel stressed, I can, even if I'm on a Zoom call, you know, I can, I can feel my body in the seat. I can feel my feet on the ground, reset and refocus and let my, my attention come from my head back down into my body. And um, those types of informal practices, you know, you need, you need some kind of ritual, but if you do them regularly, they can become just as powerful. Even there, there's some research recently that uh, an informal mindfulness practice might even be more important than when people sit on a cushion and do a formal meditation practice. What's the impact? So the first one worth mentioning is just the physical effects on that stress system. I was talking before about how psychological stress can keep on going. It has a set of properties around it that make it just persist in a way that's not useful. And we need ways of cutting that off. And by taking a physical reset, you allow your body to rest. You allow your body to stop this continual cyclic pattern of stress uh, so that those organ systems and so that those brain systems can rest. And the, the hormones that are involved in regulating it can go back to a more easygoing and cyclic pattern. Uh, and that's really powerful just in and of itself. But then like we were saying before, I think the, the, another effect of it is that it actually allows you to be flexible and effective in the moment. Being shut down and stuck in sort of like an anxious loop is actually not a good way of being alert to what's coming up in your environment and how best to help someone. Or as I like to say, you're not always being chased by a lion. Yeah. So have, what, what have you noticed in your practice when people start to do these things? What, what's the longer term impact for folks, either folks who are dealing with substance use themselves or their, their loved ones? Yeah, I think a key theme in this is the thing that's coming to mind right now is a, a key theme in substance use problem treatment is agency in people feeling like they have agency and they have power. They have the ability to just make positive changes. And that's so precious. If somebody gets the opportunity to feel like, here's the thing I can do. Here's the thing I have control over. What better to have a feeling of agency over than your own body? I think that can be really powerful. Another thing we didn't discuss is breathing exercises. Yeah. I think timed breathing exercises are a really nice way of just immediately resetting your physiology. And yeah, for people interested in more, there are a lot of different timed intervals. And I would just say it's like dating. You have to go out and try a different, a few different practices and see what really hits for you. You know, there's box breathing, which is four seconds in hold, out hold. There's four, seven, eight breath. There's different ones you can try. But back to your question, if somebody can do that and feel like, wow, you know, this, this feeling that I thought was like permanent now that I couldn't change, I actually have the power to take a few minutes and really make a difference. I think that's really powerful kind of like bird's eye level learning about 
and you might not be necessarily trapped in something. And that applies to the people who are, who are struggling with the substance use disorder too. You might not have quote unquote control over a really difficult or challenging circumstance. It doesn't mean to be in like perfect control of every single situation. Um, but if, if somebody who's struggling can get a window into, Hey, I can, I can modulate my own physical responses. I can do a breathing exercise and feel, you know, at least 30% better. That's huge. I think that can be really hopeful for people. So really what you're saying is that having the, the ability to work with yourself and calm your system down and then have more options for responding actually gives you this sense of agency. And I, I think there's this other aspect of it, which is that things that, and you said this, that sometimes the state that we're in feels permanent. And when you have these tiny moments of relief from it, it actually allows you to realize that it's not permanent, that you have agency and choice in moments, and that could actually change who you are and change your life. Yeah, absolutely. And if, for people who do meditate, I, I super duper support meditation. I think it's a really powerful intervention when it makes sense for people. I just said what I did earlier, because if you sit down today and do your first meditation tryout as a 20 minute session, it's going to be challenging and there's going to be restlessness and all the rest. But exactly what you just said about seeing that mental conditions and physical conditions are not permanent. That's one of the key lessons of meditation, because just so even in the course of a five minute meditation session, you can see how thoughts arise and fall and you get angry and then you get tired. Then you get sort of lazy, then you get hopeless, then you get really hopeful. And just that in itself, when you're not even doing anything, shows you that the mind is constantly changing, the body is constantly changing. And sometimes the effective thing to do is just to sit back and surf it, let it rise, let it fall. You know, I really like, though, that you've given us a couple of techniques that can be done in the moment because I think the average perception out there about meditation is, or meditation yoga is that you do them separate from whatever it is that's happening, right? And that that's what's going to help. But really, it's these small little pieces, little steps that you can take, but in the moment when things are happening, that can help you to just calm yourself down in those particular moments that are, that's really important. So I thank you for that. Thank you for giving me, because <laughs> I still have my moments of, uh, of panic and, and worry and anxiety, and I don't know what to do with them. Other than I, I do ask myself about, I calm myself down and start talking about the feelings. I have that internal conversation with myself, but I do like these like breathing techniques, I'm going to give them a whirl. So, so Carl, here's another thing. There, so many people that we're working with, their loved ones have dual diagnosis. And also, I think at some point you wind up having an anxiety disorder if you have a loved one, if you're dealing with a loved one. So what's the impact on actual chronic anxiety? When somebody has a loved one who has dual diagnosis? Or just if somebody in, in general the tools that you're talking about, how does it impact chronic anxiety? I, I think it can be really helpful and a good way of practicing with it. You know, I, talking about it really benefits me too, <laughs> uh, Lori. Um, you know, all of these things are really simple to say. That's the beauty of it, but they're not easy. It's almost like 
other forms of physical practice, like working on your golf swing or your tennis swing or choose your kind of physical metaphor and um, anxiety. You know, most people have anxiety in some form or another, if you take the broad view of anxiety and that's okay. That's, that's what our minds are built for. That's how we are able to, you know, build microphones and video screens and master our environments as, as human beings. And that's why we're running the planet for better or for worse um, rather than some other animal. The problem is when it becomes unhelpful, when it, it tips over into something that's uh, actually counterproductive. And that's the part that takes practice. So I think the first step is to adopt that practice mindset around anxiety, that this is a mental habit that, you know, takes time to unravel. You know, we can be very tough on ourselves with uh, physical exercise too, but even so nobody would go into the gym on the first day and expect to lose 50 pounds. Nobody would go in and say, I'm just going to run on the treadmill until I drop the pounds. Uh, in the same way, you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect like super duper rapid effects on anxiety. You know, it might be something that takes uh, a multiple week, sort of multiple month kind of exercise to unravel. And I think what Lori is saying is like, how do you have these little stolen moments for five or 10 minutes where you just try it out and see what it feels like or do the dishes and actually watch, watch yourself and witness yourself doing it as opposed to losing consciousness when we do things or and not having the expectation that when you do it for the first couple of times or even even ever that all of these difficult feelings and emotions and thoughts are going to go away it's about calming it down in the moment even just seeing tiny little bit of reinforcement meaning or payoff reward like oh i was able to think it through a little bit more logically versus expecting myself to just, oh, now I'm going to be calm Betty, right? And I'm just going to handle, I'm oh, I'll do this every single time and everything's going to go smoothly, which I think is a lot of the time the expectation that people have when they first start implementing these kind of techniques. They have these monumental expectations of what this is going to do for them or that uh, they're going to do it right. Yeah. Mm. Or that they're going to do it right. Like there's a wrong way to do it. Just give it a try and just see what it can do for you over time. And also there is one other thing is that people forget to do it when they're first starting out. Mm -hmm. Right. So you, you, you're faced with some kind of a crisis or what you perceive to be a crisis or, you know, this needs my attention right now and you forget to do it. The crisis ends and then you go, oh, I should have done it. <laughs> right. And it's it's almost like I'm like, well, do it now, then do it, you know, and maybe next time and don't kill yourself over the fact that you didn't do it in that moment. Mm -hmm. It'll come up again. Trust me. Definitely. And also it gives you a good motivation for doing it, even when you're feeling decent. So when, say, for example, if somebody is feeling very anxious and they come to me and they're looking for a basic sort of entry level technique, I, I would say like find a breathing exercise that works for you, maybe four, seven, eight, maybe box breathing, maybe something else and do it twice a day. Like you're taking medicine, do it twice a day. Like it's something that's prescribed to you. 
even if you're feeling good, because a lot of times people do start to feel their stress level drop a little bit. And then maybe what I, what I came to learn is three or four days in, they might say like, Oh, that's cool. Well, that that worked. And now I can stop. But then you don't have both the reminder and also the sort of like basis for practice uh, when the stress comes back a week from now or two weeks from now or three weeks from now. And it really is like a physical practice. It really is almost like muscle memory to have that wisdom in your body that this is something I can draw on in that moment. And Kayla, you said the word, you said the phrase stolen moments. And um, I think that's, that, that points toward something about these types of little tricks that they feel like it's stealing time. It feels like it's, it's negative or it's for me or I'm stealing it away from somebody else. Uh, but again, like the truth of the matter is it's, it's not actually helpful to stay stuck in a sort of anxious, perseverating moment. The thing is the anxiety tricks us in that moment. It tricks us into thinking that it's functional. It's, a, it's as if like the anxiety is going to protect us or come up with some sort of plan that uh, we didn't foresee or like we'll finally remember that thing that we need to remember uh, or we'll have some insight that'll help us make a breakthrough and this or that. That's tricky. You know, it's a, the tricky kind of sticky aspect of the, of the habit loop of anxiety. It's actually more compassionate to, to take a break and to step away from it. But I think that you were asking about anxiety and what the, the chronic effect of anxiety is. I think one of, the, one of the key sort of paradigm shifts people need to make sometimes is to look at it as a habit. It's not a thing that's happening to me. It's not I am anxiety. It's that here is this thing that's partially a mental habit and it's on my enemy. Here it is. It's a part of me, but I need to start looking at it and seeing it as a thing that I can work with and work toward coexisting with. Well, and I think the more work we do with this, the more we can see what's actually a lion, you know, because the, the, the model that I talk about all the time is that it's very primitive. That's why we have this in our system, because we had to be able to figure out what to do if the lion was chasing us. That's the functional part of anxiety is, oh my God, I'm alert. I hear something. Let me do mm. something about it. But if everything is translated into danger, 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 then it loses it, its effectiveness to respond. So to me, the work is to, to kind of settle the system so that we then can actually know when there's a lion or when there's not a lion so that your anxiety could respond well when there is a lion, but not everything is a lion. Yeah, it's rarely a lion. I mean, all those <laughs> systems I talked about at the outset, it's like shutting down a lot of your organ systems, including your immune system, so that your body has basically sugar. So your body has glucose so it can run fast. And, you know, thank goodness there's not a lot of situations today where we literally have to run away from a threat. So all of those responses that evolved to keep us safe when there was an immediate physical threat to our bodies, they're just not, they're just not helpful. You know, just not helpful for the kinds of challenges we deal when we're sort of strategizing or, you know, talking to somebody else and trying to help them. We don't need to like lift them up and carry them. Usually it's not the way it works. We do have a couple of other questions, kind of like driving off the path a little bit to a few other things that we were hoping to talk to you about. Just quickly, how did you come to your position on your conception about substance use disorder? Yeah, it's a work in progress still, honestly. And I'm, I'm really curious about it because I think we have a lot of like historical and cultural baggage around the term addiction. And, you know, for me, I, I think it requires a lot of humility 
as a clinician to say like everyone's coming in with their own model and I'm not trying to be some sort of stealth missionary to convince people of what addiction is. I'm actually starting my own podcasts where I, I talk to different experts and thinkers about um, how they think about addiction and not just scientists, but also like historians, sociologists, policymakers. Cause I think, you know, there's so many different like warring camps that we need to kind of take a step back and try to look for the commonalities and points of synthesis. But um, that kind of stuff, you know, that, that gets to my bioethics side, which sometimes sounds like a little dry and academic, but I found it very useful clinically to look at the history and the, the laws around addiction, because a lot of the ways we think of addiction are actually just a relic of the way we've criminalized some drugs, but not other drugs. And, you know, not only did that cause tremendous harm to many different communities, it also hurts everyone because it results in a distorted view of addiction. So, you know, just for example, in the fifties, everyone was really, really worried about heroin and the pharmaceutical companies back then really wanted to carve out a space for barbiturates, which were an early type of sedative. And then also benzodiazepines, a different type of type of sedative. So they, they twisted themselves into pretzels trying to talk about how one drug was addictive, but the other drug wasn't addictive. That totally gets away from, I think the, uh, the original notions of addiction where, you know, addiction is a human universal. Everyone's somewhere on the spectrum and they have the capacity to be addicted or not addicted. And it's dynamic and it kind of waxes and wanes. So all that's to say, uh, I think, you know, it's good to be curious about addiction and I'm still learning today. I think, I think it's good to get as many different multiple perspectives as possible. To be continued, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to your podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd love to connect with folks. The point is not to make it academic, but to have it useful and translate it for everyone, for everyone who's curious. Okay. Can I ask you just a couple of quick questions about one of the newest, like, forms of treatment for substance use disorder are um, psychedelics. Could you talk a little bit about um, psychedelics? I keep reading about them. I keep reading about Ibogaine. Ibogaine Ibogaine is one. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's such a big topic. I'm going to have one of my colleagues who's a ketamine researcher on my own podcast. So if you want like an hour long deep dive, I think we'll get into some of that, but they're all different. They're all different compounds are administered in different ways. They have different effects. So there are places that set up ketamine as a sort of trip treatment where people go on an inward journey and then learn from it and integrate it in the same way they do from, uh, say, something like psilocybin. Totally different compounds have totally different effects on folks, even though they're just sort of generally in the same class. And I think the thing, I mean, what's the, what's the most important thing to say about this? I honestly don't know. I think it's that at a bird's eye level, we, we have a very short memory and try to put drugs into a box. They're either good drugs or bad drugs. And yeah. um, right now we're in a moment where the pendulum is swinging and everyone is saying psychedelics are a panacea. You know, it's like a cure-all. And I have a lot of faith in the power of psychedelics and plant-based medicines. I think a lot of people can be helped by them. I have a patient currently who's in the Johns Hopkins trial using psilocybin and has had tremendous results. And that's one of the main centers with Roland Griffiths that's had some really powerful results. And like any other medical intervention, these things have both risks and benefits. So there are some people for whom it's not appropriate. There are a lot of ways in which these things can be administered in a dangerous way 
in most jurisdictions are not legal. And so people, they, they feel ashamed or they feel like they have to hide it from their medical provider. So they go off all of their psychiatric meds without telling anyone. And then they kind of like run off to Mexico to mm-hmm. do a not very well-regulated treatment. That's a lot different than the studies that are done in Hopkins and that say Michael Pollan is writing about. And we got to get clear on that. There are, it's important to be careful, not because these are dangerous, not because they're addictive, because the actual addiction risk for psychedelics is very low, but if people have a bad experience, it can be very traumatic. So I'm not trying to put cold water on it. Again, I think there's a lot of promise. And if these, these therapies are done in a thoughtful and careful way, they could bring a lot of good to a lot of people, but it's, it's not for every single person on the face of the planet. It's not for every single person who has a substance use disorder. And we do have to just be, be really careful about it because it's a powerful experience. Well, and as somebody who's going to be moving into that in my own practice, I'm, I'm working with a, a clinic. And to me, the, the part that makes it valuable is that it's assisted therapy so that you're in a therapeutic process with that as part of the process so that you're working with therapists. It's integrated into therapy because any of these medications, if it's not integrated and grounded, then it's a moment as opposed to really working through issues. Mm -hmm. Um, So to me, that's a big, big difference is like, what's the, what's the structure that holds that process as opposed to just going off and doing it which could be valuable to some people, but those studies are being done with assisted therapies as opposed to people just taking it. And that's the difference from my perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I I think there's this dangerous tendency to reduce things to a brain-based explanation, like the psychedelic is somehow going into the brain and doing all the work. And that totally obscures all the effects of the preparation, the guide during the treatment, the integration sessions afterward, it's a, it's an assisted treatment. Like you're saying, it's not just that you take a dose of a thing like an antibiotic and then it goes in your body and just, you know, brush off the hands. I'm all done here. We have, we have a tendency to miss that when it just becomes like a sort of soundbite level debate. And I think we saw a similar kind of pendular swing with cannabis, which is another huge topic. (laughs) And I don't mean to open up a huge can of worms, but um, cannabis was villainized totally villainized as if it was like worse than heroin for a lot of time. And then the pendulum swung. And now in my view, it's way too available. And also, by the way, not taxed enough. And so the, you know, states where it's, where it's legal are not even sort of like recouping the harms and cannabis is not super dangerous, but there, there is a small proportion of people who have issues with it. And so we can't be stuck in this all or nothing thinking about substances. It's been wonderful having you on and, and uh, maybe we could, maybe we can have you back on again. Yeah. It's really great to connect with you. And I love talking with people, you know, I, I do some clinical work, but for people who are in the field and talking to parents, I think it's really a wonderful thing you're doing. So I'm really honored to be on the podcast. It was and quite a gift. <laughs> if anybody ever wanted to get in contact with you, is there any way for our listeners to like send you a message Yeah. So the best place is my website and there's a way to sign up right on the front page. And I've got a newsletter. There's like a free guide attached to that about different paths to recovery. And um, that's, that's a nice way to get in touch too, because once you're on the newsletter, you can just write me back and I I get those messages. Yeah. So my website is carlericfisher.com. And if you Google it, yeah, it's Eric with Carl with a C, 
Eric with a K, Fisher without a C. It's tricky because there's a hundred ways of spelling each of those things, but I think I'm the only shrink who's Carl Eric Fisher. So if you just, if you look so. up, it'll come up, but yeah, the new, the sign up for the newsletter, that's the best way to get in touch with me. And um, yeah, I'm really interested in connecting with folks and hearing about what's useful to them, what kind of guests they want to have. I I'm on social, like I went on and I made the social media accounts. I'm not super active on them, but you can still find me and probably send me a direct message. I'm not even totally sure. Okay, great. Thank you. And thank you so much. Kayla, can you just kind of wrap up? I'm going to sum it up. I'll do the wrap. Please do. (laughs) So we've been speaking with Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, who is a specialist in addiction. And what we talked about is the biophysiological effects of stress on the body and also tools to actually calm the nervous system down and allow your body to replenish itself, as well as different ways about thinking of addiction. But that is a very listen to the whole podcast because, you know, Dr. Fisher has tremendous information and this is really, really helpful. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you, everybody. And we will be back on next week. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.